Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Thank you, brother. I was just whispering to my wife, I wonder where they got their information about me so uh, it was it was nice to know that uh, at least you went to a site that I'm familiar with we are so just honored to be with you all this morning and uh, we've looked forward to this for quite some time and um, on behalf of the folks who are here and I was myself I was wondering how you are going to be able to differentiate between our folks and then any new visitors you might have this morning. So I thought about maybe putting blue stickers on us or something, but uh, we'll just have to trust the Lord in all of that. But on, on behalf of our Bright Star Bible Church family, I want to begin uh, really just by thanking you for opening your doors to, to us to allow us to spend this time with you this morning. We consider you from all I've seen in all I've heard, we consider you a faithful, um, a faithful sister church. And, and these days, finding a faithful church is almost as hard as finding godly men for my two daughters. And so, uh, so it's been wonderful to have that opportunity today. Um, we also have some mutual friends, um, some friends that have spoken very highly of this local fellowship. And so... Um, we share a mutual conviction. I believe that First um, Timothy 3.15 says the church of the living God is the pillar and the support of the truth, and we know that to be the word of God. The church has to know that that is our purpose in the world, that we are proclaiming the truth of God's word unapologetically and boldly. So again, we're honored to be here. We're excited about all the new friendships that we have already made and, and hopefully will continue to make in the future. And, and it might be customary uh, for, for the, the guest preacher to say something about themselves, but I have no need of doing that, uh, nor would I dare uh, spend any more precious time in this pulpit doing so uh, than that that's already been done, okay? So we'll have a chance to visit later. If you have other questions, I would be more than happy to answer questions about myself. But it's great to see all these wonderful faces, these new faces, and to see our church family out there as well, just kind of peppered in amongst the rest of you. This is the body of Christ, amen? Beautiful. Um, I will say very quickly that I have been blessed with a, a beautiful, wonderful, godly wife who has been such a help to me uh, in ministry, we've been blessed with three uh, just, I mean, wonderful kids that are all pursuing Christ, uh, which as a parent is, is, a, is a blessing, if you know, if you've been there, just a wonderful thing. And I, I want to say this to our church folks, too. I am truly honored to have the, um, the opportunity to pastor these folks at Bright Star uh, what a blessing you are to me, some of the most precious people that I've known. So I want to thank you all for, for making the trip over here to be with this local body as well. All right, without further delay, I'd like you to turn to our text today as we begin. And if you're able, I'd like you to stand. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 18, Revelation 2, 
beginning in verse 18. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, This is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your last deeds are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. She does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and with all the churches. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not have this teaching who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Would you bow? Lord Jesus, our prayer at this moment is simple. Open our eyes and open our ears that we may understand the truth of your word, Lord God. And then give us the courage to align our lives to the truth of your word in all of the areas, Father, that we may not honor you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we jump right into the passage this morning, that first word tells us something and tells us this is a continuation of something that has been ongoing from the beginning of chapter 2. I'm certain most of you all who study your Bibles already know what's going on, but let me set the stage for those of you who may not know. There are seven letters being written to seven churches. Jesus himself is the author in perfect unity with the voice of the Spirit and through the hand of his beloved friend and chosen apostle, John. You could even say that these are additional epistles, if you will, because they're written to seven historic churches in Asia Minor. And up until now in chapter 2, geographically, we've been working our way north like the hands on a clock. So from Ephesus, situated at 9, would be, uh, and then Smyrna at 10, Pergamum at 11, and then along this supposed mail route, now we turn southeast until we come to Thyatira, which would be situated right about where the number one would be. Now granted, this clock would probably the one I'm, I'm having you picture here would be similar to the, the melting clock hanging from a tree branch on Salvador Dali's painting. So, uh, but I think you get the point. And it is my belief that these seven letters encompass not only the actual seven churches in the past, but they also look ahead 
into the future of the church throughout church history? Is it coincidence that Christ picked these specific seven churches? Because there were, in fact, churches all over that area in Asia, Asia Minor that he could have written to. But why these seven churches and why in this specific order? Well, these churches had issues being addressed. And each letter was addressed in the order just as they're situated on the map. Seven churches were chosen for a reason. I believe signifying perfect completion, representing the fullness of the church until the catching away of the saints when Christ receives his bride. And we know, we all know the unchanging nature of God, at least we should. And in this passage, we should also consider the fallen nature of man, that it's cyclical, all right? And uh, as the um, the wise Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The things they dealt with in the flesh in the first century, in the fifth century, in the tenth century, and so on, are the same things that we deal with in our flesh even today. We know that these letters dealing with the issues of these seven churches in their day transcend to address the issues of every church in every age. So if a local church conducts themselves in the positive ways that Christ commands in each of these letters, then we know that Christ would approve of them and they will be commended, of course, when they give an account, when they stand before him. However, if the majority conduct themselves in such a way that they reflect the churches that he corrects in these letters, they can expect that same correction. These church report cards, if you will, are a gift to us. For us today, as we compare our local churches to these seven letters, we see how we measure up to Christ's standards within the body of Christ. Now, back in Revelation chapter 1, you can flip over there real quick. If you want, I'm going to bullet point through some of these. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through, through 20, we're treated to John's vision of the risen, glorified Jesus Christ he reveals himself as the author of these letters. He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent his church. They're pure gold because of their great um, worth and value to him. Remember, he poured out his pre precious blood to purchase his church. But why lampstands? Well, because lampstands in their day shined light. And it represents the church shining the light of truth into the darkness of the world. But also these lampstands were mobile so that if a church ceases to do what God has called them and commissioned them to do, the lampstand can be removed. They can lose their influence. And here our Lord is in the middle of these lampstands, these churches, investigating each one with omniscient perfection and righteous judgment. He reveals himself using various descriptions, all of which have significant meaning as it relates to his ministry, his majesty, his eternal attributes. He is the one with the brilliant robe and a golden sash, hair and head like wool, his eyes a flame of fire. Feet of red-hot burning bronze, a voice like the sound of mighty crashing waves, and a sharp 
two-edged sword which proceeds out of his mouth. His face is shining as the brilliance of the midday sun, the first and the last, the one who was dead and hallelujah is alive again. He holds the keys of death and Hades. John saw the Lord whom he loved, the one he walked with, the one he leaned into Christ's chest on the night of the Last Supper. They had a close relationship, and yet here, that same John fell at Christ's feet as a dead man overwhelmed at his majesty. In each letter, Jesus refers back to this vision so that each church can be certain it is he, the risen, glorified Christ, who is in fact addressing them. In each of these epistles, the underlying heart of what he writes is dealing with the loyalty of each church to Christ himself. To Ephesus, he refers them back to chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 and 16, and it says, He walks among the lampstands and he holds the seven stars. Now, Ephesus was a strong church, a faithful church, but their loyalty to Christ was called into question as their first love or their early love began to wane. To Smyrna, he says, I am the first and the last. I was dead and now live, and I know your tribulation. In other words, I've been there. I died, but I was resurrected. And he's saying to them, Essentially, if you do as I did, if you go through what I went through, if you even die, you will be resurrected as well. You are eternally invincible. And their loyalty held even during intense persecution, imprisonment, and death, and witnessing those that they loved uh, martyred right in front of them. And the Lord, we see in this letter to them, he has no correction whatsoever. They were a faithful church. To Pergamum, he writes, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword, and I know where you live. How would you take that from the Lord Jesus? Especially if it's followed up with, and I have these things against you. Now it can be hurtful when someone we love has something against us, but how terrifying it must be to receive a letter from the risen Christ. And he says, I have these things against you. We know from Scripture it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, even if he has only a few things against us. They had been tolerating false doctrine within the church, specifically the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was likened to Balaam's error, but put simply, they mixed the world's ways with God's ways. They compromised for the sake of comfort, for gain, akin to our modern prosperity gospel, if you will. Men whose idolatry and immorality caused the folks in the church to stumble, and the leadership had been tolerating these particular people within the local body of Christ. Repent, he writes, or I will come to you and make war against them. This is interesting that with these churches, there are those who are loyal, who remain pure, who overcome, and he refers to them as you. And then there are those who yield to false teachers, who live impure lives of compromise, to whom Christ refers to as them. Keep that in mind as we move forward here. 
So now we come to Thyatira, which was a small military outpost guarding the road running north and south, kind of a gateway to Pergamum. And if they were under siege, their job was to hold off the enemy long enough to allow the folks in Pergamum to prepare for the invading armies that were most certainly coming their way. This is the longest letter of the seven, which is interesting because it was the smallest town of the seven, a town of little significance. In fact, uh, Pliny the Elder wrote of Thyatira, he dismissed it in this way, quote, Thyatira and other unimportant communities, end quote. Now, just to put that in perspective, if I were to introduce my three kids to you and I were to say to you, this is Cassidy and my two other unimportant children. That's, that's essentially what's going on here. Thyatira was a town of little import, destined to be destroyed and built back up again over and over. So back to verse 18, let's get a bit further than the word and this morning. Revelation 2, 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, This is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says. Now if we look at this in contrast, we look at his letter to Smyrna, he sympathized with their humanity. He related to their persecution, to their tribulation, and he wrote, again, I'm the one who died and lives again. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But here he says to this church, this is what the Son of God says. Here he's relating his office of righteous judge and his coming wrath, the wrath of God. He refers them to John's vision again, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His omniscient gaze, it melts away the exterior facade. It penetrates just as deep as it needs to, and nothing is hidden from his gaze. His feet represent his righteous judgment. Later in Revelation 19, 15, we read, quote, He treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. This is not a pretty picture when you consider the relationship between feet and grapes being tread out in a wine press. It's a picture of God's righteous wrath. And yet he goes further when he says his feet are kindled red hot like burnished bronze. His judgment is not only righteous, but it purifies as well. Verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your last deeds are greater than at first. This is an incredible statement. But again, we have a church here with a split personality. There's the you, those who are truly his in this local body. And here he is commending them because their good works are spreading. They are having an impact now more so than they even did at their founding, uh, that which he corrected Ephesus uh, for falling away and losing their first love. But then he begins with the words that would be absolutely terrifying to anyone sitting out in the seats of that local church. He says, I have this against you. Imagine sitting in this church and the letters of the apostles have basically been trickling out for the last few decades. They have 26 letters total. 
And here arrives the 27th letter to this local church. It arrives along the mail route from Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, and now the carrier arrives in Thyatira, and this is the final letter from John, his revelation, and he's been exiled on the Isle of Patmos, the last living apostle. Imagine the weight that that letter would carry. And as he stands there and hands it to the pastor of that church, he says, this is John's revelation, and you need to know something. A portion of this letter is written directly to this church. But I got to tell you something more. The portion that's written to this church is written from our risen Christ Jesus himself. Now, I can imagine in that moment, if I were the pastor of that church, that maybe I'd be excited right at the beginning, and then almost immediately my stomach would sink because I would realize the weight of what those words meant. So how would you feel sitting in the pews as the pastor begins to read this letter and the ascended Christ Jesus writes to the church, I have this against you. I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Isn't it interesting that to the church at Pergamum, we saw that he pointed their attention to the Old Testament false prophet Balaam. But here in Thyatira, he points their attention to Jezebel. That wicked queen, she calls herself a prophetess. And if you go back in the Old Testament, she was a stumbling block to the people of Israel, practically a witch responsible for leading them into the very uh, depths of their idolatry as a nation. That woman who dared say she spoke the infallible oracles of God and little by little she mixed in foreign paganism until Israel had completely compromised. Jesus writes, there is a Jezebel in this church doing exactly the same thing. Continuing on here, she, she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I could spend four hours here going through all of the details of all of this, this extensive letter. Uh, thankfully, I've, I've pared it down to three hours. Um, but for the sake of understanding the context, in the city of Thyatira, they had formed guilds within that city. And here's the way you need to think of these guilds. They are similar to what we would know as labor unions. And these guilds were permeated with paganism. And just like in labor unions, how you have to pay your dues to be a part of a union, you have to pay your dues uh, in, in this particular guild in the way that you had to be involved with pagan rituals and all of the things that they were involved in in order to keep your job. So most scholars believe that this woman, labeled as Jezebel, had convinced the Thyatiran believers that it was indeed okay to engage in these various pagan rituals. Because after all, she likely argued this, your sin is already paid for. You can dance with the devil. You can do whatever you need to do to survive. In fact, you, you can know the deep things of Satan 
and you can worship Jesus too. The compromise at the church in Pergamum was caused by those who wanted to be comfortable, to live the good life. They wanted more. But here in Thyatira, it was pure cowardice. They bought into her lies because they wanted to, because they weren't willing to lose their livelihood. They were not willing to live with less. They were not willing, ultimately, to suffer for Christ. In verse 21, Jesus writes, And I gave her time to repent. Our Lord always gives us time to repent. All the time we need. Is there any doubt that we serve a long-suffering, merciful God who loves us and who has been so kind to each of us? His own children. He gave her time to repent. And her response to that mercy? She does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a bed of sickness. That word sickness is not in the original text. You might notice that it's in italics there, but it's likely very close to what the author intended. It, in other words, Christ is saying she's, she's idolatrous, she's, uh, she's sleeping with idols, if you will, and if she wants a bed, I will give her a bed. I will give her a bed of sickness leading to her death. That's what he's saying here. It seems obvious to me that those who commit adultery with her are that he describes as his actual bond slaves are true believers that are just deceived and have fallen into that idolatry. They will face great tribulation. They're, they'll face big, big trouble. They're going to be chastised because we know in Hebrews 12, 6, we know God's word tells us for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He flogs every son in whom he receives. However, we see a second group mentioned in this passage labeled as her children. These are not his bond slaves. These are not true believers. If his bond slaves are the you, then these folks, her children, are the them. Verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You see, Christ is addressing every single person in that church, and he tells them that his omniscient gaze will lay bare every heart and every mind. Nothing will be hidden from him. Do you know, folks, that as you sit there this morning, that you may think you've got hidden places in your life, but there's absolutely nothing in your life that is hidden from him. If there's an area of your life that has slipped into darkness, we have a long-suffering God who loves you. No matter what you've fallen into, the best thing you can possibly do is turn on the light. Turn on the light. Go to someone, your brother, your sister, someone that you trust, and tell them what you're dealing with and confess your sins to them so that they can pray with you and for you and, and, and you can step back into a, a right path with God. Amen? There's nothing hidden. And unless, he says, my slaves repent, they will face great tribulation. And to her children, you will taste the grave. He'll actually kill them. Repent or you will get what's coming to you. Imagine what that must have felt like, like when this was read out loud and 
I'm sure in the room you could have heard a pin drop. This is Christ's words to this church. Can you imagine just yourselves if, if Christ had written to this church specifically and he said, I know your secret sin. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. He says that. I'm sure it must have been sheer panic for these folks sitting in the pews or whatever they sat on. Even the faithful in the crowd must have wondered, I've been diligent. I've been faithful. I've studied. I love the Lord. Am I going to be caught up in this wrath as well? Am I just going to be blamed for all of the pagans around me? But look at the loving kindness once again of Christ as he reassures those in his church who are truly his. Verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not have this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. If you're faithful, he knows. If you love him, he knows. We see a very notable comparison of Satan's work. If you, if you just do a survey of the letters to the churches, a comparison of Satan's work in each church, or at least some of them where Satan's mentioned, as we search out the context of the previous letters, as I said, we find that in the letter to the church of Smyrna, they are faced with an outside threat, and he calls it the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan, which is Satan working through the man-made religious practices of a Christless Jews, those who rejected Christ and continued on in their Judaism. They had made themselves the enemies of those who follow Jesus, and so thus they were still saying that they were God's people, but they were actually attacking God's people, and so they're labeled the synagogue of Satan. Now in Pergamum, that church also faced an outside threat from the throne of Satan. The throne of Satan, the, the seat of power of Satan, but this time working through the pagan Gentiles. Great pressure to conform to the world around them, to bow to the cult of emperor worship, and they had witnessed the people they love, some of the people they love, burn for their faith, pay the actual or the, the, the most significant price that any believer could, could pay. However, here in the church of Thyatira, it seemed uh, had given, they had given themselves over almost completely to a threat on the inside of the church to this woman he called Jezebel. And she had a following. And we, we see the contamination permeating this local body through this woman. Satan pushed them to such compromise that they believed they were permitted to engage in things that they called, they actually called, the deep things of Satan. And at the same time, they believed they could maintain a level of spirituality. They had bought into her lie again, because she came in the name of the Lord. Because she said, God's told me to tell you this. I'm a prophetess. Christ reassures those in this church who are truly his, who have been faithful, those whose deeds are greater than the first, those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not given in to Jezebel's deception. He says, I place no other burden on you. 
He does, however, give them further instruction. He says, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast. Hold fast until I come. In other words, hold on for dear life. Be strong. Be mighty. Master it. Prevail. There is such great hope ahead. Verse 26, and he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. So he's received authority. He's going to give his authority to those who have followed him and been faithful. So to the overcome, overcomer, he says, you're going to have authority over the nations. And in light of scripture, there's only one context in which this makes any sense whatsoever. And I'll give you a few hints if you like to take notes and jot things down. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against another, this is Paul writing, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And then he says, or do you not know the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the world. Second Timothy 2, 13, it says, if we endure we will also reign with him. Revelation 5.10 says, You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 24 says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those who are truly his will be given his authority to rule and reign over the nations with Christ in a literal 1,000-year reign. A literal 1,000-year reign. I'm going to wind it down here in just a few minutes. But first, I want to point your attention to this contrast we see in Scripture. Remember in the letters to these seven churches, we see that contrast in the local church uh, between those who are truly His, the you, and those who are not, the them. And there's a common theme in Scripture regarding those who claim to follow Christ, those who claim to follow Christ. If you recall Jesus in Matthew 7, he warned of bad trees among good trees. He spoke of many who will call him Lord, Lord, and say, did we not do these mighty things in your name? And yet he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He warned of wolves among the sheep, he told of the wise and foolish men and the two foundations that we can build our lives upon, the rock or the sand. There seems to be a constant struggle within the visible church. And when I say visible church, I'm saying anybody out there who claims to be a Christian, anybody out there who claims to be a part of the body of Christ. And as we know in the Bible Belt, that is everybody and their dog, okay? But there seems to be a constant struggle and yet we have the duty to look at everyone with a discerning eye. We have to be careful because you and I, we don't have the omniscient gaze of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't penetrate into the hearts and minds like our Lord does. And we, of course, don't know the future either. So we don't know if someone's simply fallen into sin and and the Lord's going to bring them back on the path of righteousness, or if they truly never knew the Lord in the first place. 
But we are called to judge righteously to a degree. We have this solemn duty to judge to the best of our ability with biblical discernment within the house of God, as, as it says in 1 Peter 4.17. And the first commandment that Christ gave his church is notable. The very first commandment he gives the church was to have a robust church discipline in order to maintain purity within the body of Christ. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or the tax collector. In other words, I'm sure you know the history. They weren't too keen on hanging out with the Gentiles, and they hated the tax collectors. In, in other words, you need to put them out of the local fellowship. Put them out of the church. You know, we should be able, as the body of Christ, we should be discerning enough using God's word to recognize a Balaam when we see one. A man who's willing to compromise truth for gain. Many times it comes in the form of greed, the love of money, a lavish lifestyle. You might see it fleshed out on a stage in a pastor wearing $1,500 tennis shoes or, uh, or raising money for a multi-million dollar jet, right? But most often it comes in the form of wanting to make a name for himself. To grow a big church. And once the church is a certain size, the pastor's words just get a little softer. They cleverly meander around difficult texts. The last thing they want to do is offend someone because if they offend someone, they might actually leave the church and their numbers will go down. The bigger the church gets, the more pragmatic the church gets. They tell themselves if they're going to reach people, they have to attract people. They have to do things to, to bring in the lost. The church doors are flung open wide in an attempt to be seeker-friendly, but in fact, they are sinner-friendly. And when we water down the gospel, false conversions abound, and the world floods into the church, and the purity of the church is compromised. Before long, you've got lost people in positions of power in that local body. Folks, his church is called to be pure. His church is called to be pure. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul writes, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. A pure virgin to Christ. In addition we should be able to recognize a Jezebel when we see one as well. I was trying not to make eye contact with any particular person when I said that. These days, the forceful hand of cultural Christianity has pushed the visible church toward complete and total compromise. Uh, look, they're out there accepting left and right women pastors, women teaching men. They do this in direct rebellion of various passages of Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, 1 Corinthians 14, to name a few. And I'm certain that had this church in Thyatira 
obeyed these verses, how different from this letter from Christ, how different might it have been had they just simply honored Scripture? Instead, we see that one compromise leads to another and still another. And then, of course, we read the, the very often quoted 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And this is judgment. This is God's judgment. This is God turning the people over, giving them what they want. And that's not a good thing, especially when it's leading down the road to ruin. You see, uh, God will give the people what they want, and just like in Thyatira, they will fall into deception, and eventually they will have to face His judgment. However, there are always those in the worst of circumstances that will remain faithful, and they will receive their just reward. In every church, there are always the faithful. As we draw to a close, look at verse 28 in Revelation 2. Jesus promises to the overcomer, to the one who obeys, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Now, there are various references that we could go to here, but there's one that came to my mind almost immediately, and, and actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture in 2 Peter 1. This passage of Scripture is so powerful because it points us to the very thing that will keep Christ's church pure. It'll keep his church pure. Peter's making his case. The things we write are not cleverly devised tales based on subjective truth, based on our own experiences. Even the legitimate experience that they had on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ himself. Moses and Elijah shows up. In case you didn't know, they've been dead a little while at that point. Pretty big deal. Christ starts to glow like a light bulb shining through his clothes. They hear the voice of the majesty, God himself. And yet Peter makes it a point to say here in, in chapter 1, verse 19, we have, see, I, I understand all of these experiences are a wonderful thing, but experience is not truth. We can't use that as our measure, our standard of truth. He says, we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. You see, if you know Christ, the morning star has arisen in your heart, but there's coming a future day, a future day. The morning star, of course, is Jesus judging the nations uh, with him is wonderful, but our most precious reward, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we get Jesus. We get to be with Jesus for eternity, eternally. But until then, until his return, Peter gives this instruction. We have his more sure prophetic word. It's like a lamp shining in the darkness of this world. And you would do well to pay attention to the word of God until he actually returns. As the support and pillar of the truth in this fallen world, the church is his plan A and there is no plan B. We must protect the purity of the body of Christ by holding fast to his word and without compromise, hold our brothers and sisters accountable to its instruction. 
By strictly observing Christ's first command to his church in Matthew 18, we protect one another from the dangers of false teachers, from the temptation of the world, from the pressure to compromise to culture around us, to give in to the impurity of sin and the flesh. There's built-in accountability. And of course, all of those things cause the carnage that then comes along in its wake when something like that enters the body of Christ. It's never a good thing. There are broken hearts and hurt people in the path behind it. His bride must submit to the power of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified by the washing of the Word of God, to make herself ready. Jesus is coming back, folks. He's coming back. And even now, perhaps in the final days, maybe He is standing right at the edge of heaven, even now as I speak, waiting to come back. But until He comes, we have many good deeds to do in His name. This is no time for His people to cower. This is no time for his people to compromise. This is no time for his church to give in. We are here in this time for such a time as this. He's got a reason for you to be here. The gospel must be preached. And look, folks, the best is yet to come.